Hi, this is Wilbert Roger, and you're listening to the Sound Architect Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Sound Architect Podcast. My name is Sam Hughes, and I am joined by Wilbert Roger today. Thanks for joining us, Wilbert. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you. It's absolutely amazing to have you on the site. We're going to be discussing your recent project um, scoring Call of Duty World War II, um, and it's getting very well received worldwide, so congratulations. Oh, thank you. But before we discuss that, tell us how you first began your adventure into music composition. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd always, as far as I can remember, um, been a musician. I started playing the piano when I was about four years old. Um, what was kind of un unusual is that right from the get-go, I was improvising. You know, I did a lot of improvisations, um, especially, you know, in lower school and middle school. Sometimes I wouldn't even practice the actual music I was supposed to practice. <laughs> I would just create something that kind of sounded like it, and then I would, you know, go from there, which is a weird, funny way that I was actually getting practice at writing score music in a strange, you know, strange, like, abstract kind of way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, it was in high school that I first kind of got into the video game world. I, I didn't really play too much uh, in the way of video games as a kid Yeah. Um, to, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, I focused more on schoolwork and, and music. But I saw some commercials for Final Fantasy VII on TV, oh, and they nice. were advertising it like a movie. I had never seen anything like this. Um, and so I was just like, I have to get this game. This is so amazing. You know, this all this technology and like 3D was starting to become a thing. Uh, so I got the game and I played it. It was ridiculously difficult because I'd never played a game like that before, <laughs> but uh, I loved it. And what was particularly interesting about the music was that it was very basic mm. and very uh, digestible in a certain way, but also incredibly well written. Yeah. And there was something about that that was just so much more inviting to me. I mean, of course, I'd heard film scores because, you know, I went to the movies all the time, but the music and film never like it, it didn't really reach out to me in the same way that the Final Fantasy score did. And so I just played more RPGs. I played like Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VI and Xenogears and like all these other games throughout um, early high school. And I just said, you know what, I really want to do this. This is what I want to do with music. Um, so I kind of dovetailed from doing the whole piano performance thing to writing music. I mean, I started off you know, writing simple ditties. And then I uh, kind of learned how to do more complicated things by transcribing music from these games into MIDI. So I would like just listen to, I would have to record music onto from the video game directly onto like a cassette tape and then <laughs> listen awesome. to that tape like over and over and over until I got every single note correct for, you know, how to transcribe these MIDI files. Um, but I did that and that's how I learned how to compose music uh, initially. That's amazing. And then of course I went to... Yeah, you know, I, I went to college after that and, um, you know, studied music, Yale University. But while I was there, I did a lot of like indie game projects and indie film projects, student films. Um, I joined trade groups like Game Audio or Game Audio Network Guild while I was in college. Cool, yeah. And um, once I graduated, I already had, you know, quite a base of uh, material that I'd written and a couple contacts as well. So I only really spent about two years or two or three years, you know, working just random day jobs and doing game music kind of on the side yeah. until finally uh, I had been uh, hired at LucasArts as a music editor. And that's kind of where my career proper sort of began. Like that's the point where I was doing music full time. This is in 2008. And uh, yeah, it just kind of went from there. 
what an awesome job to land as well at LucasArts. That must have been amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very intimidating for a number of reasons. I mean, I'd never worked on games. Like, the very first games I worked on were uh, Lego Indiana Jones, Fracture, and Star Wars The Force Unleashed. Oh, cool. Um, and, I mean, you know, like, the other games were like, okay, wow, this is, this is a big deal. This is, like, a huge property. But, I mean, Force Unleashed was a game that sold, what, like 7 million copies, which at the time was like a huge number. Yeah, and yeah. still kind of is, like even now. And just the idea of working on something that big, you know, with so many people, it's like 200 people in the office or something. <laughs> it, was, it was so intimidating. I mean, because of the obvious, but also because if you think about it before, you know, I was working on all of these indie projects. And so that meant that I was you know, big fish in a little pond. And I would usually be the only audio person on the entire team. So I would, I would kind of be, you know, the end all be all of audio. But now I'm going to this AAA game. And I'm just like the smallest cog on the wheel <laughs> of, of audio, you know, the, the entry level, you know, whatever. And uh, I mean, it was it was great, because I learned so much so quickly from, you know, people who had been, you know, at LucasArts for you know, like, like seven years at that point. And and then, of course, all of the engineers that I would interact with and level designers. Um, so it was, it was a great, it almost felt like, you know, I never got a master's degree. So it almost felt like that. Like, this is my master's degree. And also I'm getting paid. To, to, but it was an to intense it, time. Yeah. <laughs> Very intense. I mean, like, you know, people still, even to this day, tell horror stories about the Force Unleashed crunch lasting like half a year. <laughs> oh, it's God. Crazy crazy thing like that. But I mean, again, you know, I, I look so favorably back on it because it was such a, such a great learning experience. And so, you know, very rigorous. And it wasn't, it wasn't like school where it's like, oh, you do poorly. And it's just like, okay, well, here's your bad grade, move on. Yeah, it was like, no, actually, like, that's it. <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you can't, like, not do everything 100%. Yeah, learn fast or go home. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, interestingly, that's also where I learned Reaper. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd never used um, I'd never used Reaper before. I was a Cakewalk Sonar guy. Okay, cool. Rest in peace, Cakewalk Sonar. I guess. R.I.P. Cakewalk. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I I was given some music editing assignments. Um, curiously, it wasn't even for a start. It was for Soul Calibur. We sort of collaborated a little bit on Soul Calibur Four. Oh, okay, cool. LucasArts because they had all the Star Wars characters. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. But there was like a I forget exactly what the problem was, but there was like a advanced timeline for that like i i really need to get something done pretty quickly and um the other um music people on the team they were all using logic but i logic just didn't really feel right for doing music editing or just generally i mean i'm not i'm just not really a logic kind of guy yeah i have to admit i'm not either so yeah i mean i've i've always been on pc and so logic was just this weird you know this weird thing that it didn't really make sense to use for audio. So I tried everything I could that was like easily obtainable just from the internet. I mean, like I got, like I, I tried using like Gold Wave, which at the time was free or something like that. And, you know, that wasn't working out because it's only two tracks. Same with Audacity. And then in the back of my mind, I was like, well, there's this Reaper thing. Maybe that'll let me just grab that and try it out. So I, I did. <laughs> and, you know, it was incredibly easy to use because I was already familiar with um, a video editing program named Vegas. Oh, okay. And Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, Vegas actually um, is very similar to Reaper in, in its basic audio functions. Um, so, I mean, I learned, 
all this Reaper stuff just almost instantaneously. Hmm. And it was so it was so unbelievably fast and powerful for audio editing, music editing, that um, I was just like, yep, this is the one. This is what I'm using. And I like, had them purchase it for me. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, Reaper's been uh, doing the rounds for a few years now, but it, it's, it's definitely increased in popularity and loads more people are using it, aren't they? Yeah, you would be surprised just how many people at Sledgehammer and Raven are using Reaper. Um, a lot of the sound design team uh, uses, I mean, that everyone, it's one of those cases where everyone uses Pro Tools because you have to, but for certain tasks, a lot of them just go off to Reaper and just yeah. do them, you know, super fast and a lot of a lot of editing there and, and batch conversion and uh, it just works really well yeah i mean i even use reaper to edit the podcasts and uh and do a few other things as well i mean it's fantastic for dialogue editing it's so fast especially with the batch conversion and the batch export as you say oh yeah yeah it's it's incredibly useful yeah, yeah so i mean you you kind of already said that um working at LucasArts was a turning point that changed your career would you say it was like the biggest turning point for you um i would probably say yeah uh, and the reason why is because you know, I, I started going to the Game Developers Conference nice. in 2006. And um, and I've been every year since then. So I'm like, what, 12-year veteran? That's like some crazy. Wow. But, uh, you know, going there, I mean, you could say that that was sort of a turning point as well. Yeah. Uh, because that's when I first met all of these, you know, audio people. It's where I met um, a very prominent uh, technical sound designer named Damien Kaspauer. Oh, yeah, I know Damien, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, we've kind of kept kept up ever since. He and uh, Karsten Royan, who's the senior sound designer at Bungie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that's where I met those two, and, like, the three of us have kind of been like a, you know, like three musketeers kind of situation going through, <laughs> you know, all these, what, 12 years, whatever it is, whatever it's been, um, yeah, 12 years, uh, you know, kind of keeping each other in check and also, you know, always being there supporting each other. And um, it's it's been like that from the very beginning. So uh, you could say that definitely the LucasArts thing was a huge part of my career advancing, except then I look back on it and I realized that, well, actually, probably it was because Damien was uh, contracting there as a as a tech sound designer oh, okay. and i'm pretty sure that it was him that threw my name in the in the ring of of possible um applicants for this music assistant position and yeah you know he he just t uh, like texted me he's like hey would you be interested in this you know you'd have to move to san francisco but the, and i'm just like yeah done yeah I'm done. <laughs> oh no Absolutely. please i will i will interview whatever you need to me to do i will do that get me out of philadelphia please <laughs> and you know, the the rest is history. But I think that, you know, obviously working at LucasArts had so many uh, just unbelievable opportunities. Yeah. I bet. Um, but I don't think I would have had that unless I had gone to the game developer conference and, and met these people that previously were just, you know, text on a forum or whatever, but just met them face to face. Um, it's also where I met uh, Jesse Harlan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who is the uh, music supervisor at LucasArts. And uh, we had a nice chat. And um, this is a couple months before I had, um, before that job for music assistant had opened up. But uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure he, he remembered me. And, you know, we got along and we were both from Philadelphia. So we commiserated a little bit on that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably why I was, I was hired there because, you know, I, I stepped out of the comfort zone or whatever and uh, went to this big conference and uh, just had at it. 
Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I've never been to GDC and uh, I've been dying to go. But obviously, as a freelancer in the UK, it's tricky to to get over to San Fran for a week, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, that that was it must have been an incredible few years, you know, I mean, well, I say a few incredible many years. But did you kind of leave LucasArts and go straight into freelance from that? Or did you have any transitional periods? Um, so that that's actually a really good question. Um, in truth, for the last, I would say, two years of LucasArts, I had been saying to myself, okay, you have this job. I've been here for, um, I thought, well, I was, I was there for five years, so whatever that adds up to. Yeah. But for maybe the last two years or like year and a half or something, I just thought to myself, yes, this is a very challenging position. Um, at the time, I was probably working on Star Wars First Assault, which is um, unique in that not only was I the only composer for that game, but also the music supervisor and temporarily like sort of temp audio lead. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, yeah, which I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But, like, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I kind of had this feeling like, yes, I'm sort of by the books being promoted and doing these you know, bigger and, and better things. And that's great. But I felt like my music composition wasn't quite advancing as quickly as as I wanted it to. Right. Um, yeah. Because if you think about it, you know, you're at Lucas, you're going to do a bunch of Star Wars stuff, which is awesome. That's of course. You know, yeah. Obviously, I love writing for Star Wars, but that's just <laughs> this one small thing. Whereas, uh, I mean, I guess not a lot of people know this, but I don't really just do the orchestral thing. I mean, I actually try to write in you know, many different styles, many different genres and lots of different sound sources. Yeah, sure. Not just the orchestra, but synthesizers and, and band stuff and like jazz and all these different things. And I just felt like this is really pigeonholing me. And, you know, what happens if, say, you know, I get laid off or the company goes down? <laughs> yeah. You know, what happens then? So I, I tried my best to kind of put the feelers out there. You know, I talked to a lot of people asking advice on like, well, what if I did go freelance? You know, what would you say I should do? I talked to Damien about it and he gave his input on all that. And yeah, you know, I, I sort of tried to kind of ease my way into the freelance mindset so that once it did happen, um, you know, it, it, it was definitely a shock. And, uh, you know, I, I was definitely um, very upset that you know, all of our work from Star Wars First Assault, which at the time was easily, I thought, you know, the greatest game that I'd ever worked on, um, kind of by far. I, I really loved, you know, that project and the team. Uh, I thought the music, you know, it was it was quite an accomplishment because, you know, we'd recorded with the London Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road, and I developed this whole complicated interactive system for it as well. Oh, wow, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that's that's a whole topic onto itself, but it was a very... Uh, very organic way that music was being triggered. It wasn't. It wasn't really scripted. It was just this whole AI system that looked at how you were playing the game, and that's what caused music to play. And 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 it was this whole elaborate. Thing. That sounds awesome. It, well, yeah. Too bad. <laughs> I know, right? That's gutting. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, it it definitely hurt. And um, you know, once the whole team got laid off, you know, emotions were high, of course. And oh uh, yeah, I bet. I kind of realized well. I'm probably going to be the very last person at LucasArts to get any sort of gainful, you know, next employment. Because, of course, you know, audio is unbelievably competitive. And then yeah, of yeah. that, music is about as competitive as it gets within audio. So it's like, all right, good luck, me, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, going out into the world and doing all that stuff. Um, 
But I mean, the nice thing about it was that even while I was at LucasArts, I still made sure to keep up with all of my audio contacts. I went to GDC every single year. Sometimes I would have to, you know, just pay my own pass, but I was fine with that because I was like, well, you never know what's going to happen. And I don't really oh, yeah, necessarily definitely. see myself here like forever. Um, you know, I always wanted to be that sort of independent freelance composer who's able to work on lots of different large projects and different franchises and original IP and, you know, all these different things. And so um, I always kind of kept, I guess, one foot out the door, or whatever the expression would be, yeah, just to make sure that, yeah, just to make sure that not only did I, you know, help with my own personal PR, I guess, um, but also just to try and uplift the image of LucasArts as a group. Like, there's there's always this danger of being in-house, of just being a little too insular, um, it, because, you know, like com companies don't really necessarily want their employees going out and doing all this kind of stuff because, you know, there's always that potential that they may say the wrong thing or like whatever. Yeah, some companies are super kind of closed down on it. Exactly. Yeah. And LucasArts, I think, is, is or was one of the most, you know, clamped down on that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, but I just kind of said, well, look at, you know, I think everyone on this team is unbelievably talented. Why not just kind of go out there and and you know, like let people know what we're working on and what we're doing within the bounds of NDA, of course, but like, you know, just yeah, course, have yeah. conversations with other people in the audio industry and, and just kind of be visible. Um, so I tried to do that. And I think that definitely helped make my transition, my personal transition uh, into the freelance world a lot more smooth. I would say the first um, sort of major title that I worked on outside of Lucas was probably um, Lara Croft and the Temple of Osiris. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the way that I got that gig was I had already known uh, Alex Wilmer, who is, uh, the, at the time, he was the audio director at, um, at Crystal Dynamics. Yeah, sure. But I already knew him because uh, we had met when he was uh, just the audio director and, I guess, CEO of Berkeley Sound, which is like a post-sound oh, cool. studio. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he wasn't really doing video games yet, but he was doing a lot of film scores. And uh, he came to GDC, and we had a great chat. And I was like, "Yeah, dude." And then he got hired to Crystal, and then I was like, "Hey, congratulations!" And then he made um, this game called Lara Croft and the Guardian of Light, which I absolutely loved. That was the first in that sort of yeah, um, the first top-down one where exactly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. the co-op thing. And I I was like, "This game is freaking amazing!" And so I found out Alex worked on it. I'm like, "Oh, dude, this is so awesome!" You know, whatever. And uh, <laughs> I think that because he knew that I loved that series and also because he really trust, you know, we, we became friends. It wasn't just like one offs, but, yeah, you know, because he trusted my abilities towards music implementation, um, even to the point I'm not, you know, like there, there was a time when he was like, I suppose, working on the reboot Tomb Raider. Yeah, um, I, to, I it was just called Tomb Raider, so I don't know what number, but the one with Jason. Yeah, Ray. yeah, I guess it's just called Tomb Raider yeah, reboot. Yeah, <laughs> and he he was trying to solve a problem that was a very similar thing that I was solving on Force Unleashed Two, um, which was how do you get a scene to work with no music? You know, how do you make sure that yeah, it's a cinematic game and we're going through, and the level designers always they always want their level to be like the biggest, most badass. Oh <laughs> yeah, of have. course. <laughs> but how do you make it? how do you make it work? How do you transition in and out of that? And so we had a nice chat. He came over to Lucas. We had a nice coffee and we talked through our different solutions and problems. And uh, I think from those previous experiences, while I was at Lucas, 
that made it so much easier to get the gig, you know, once, uh, you know, once I was freelance and he was looking for someone. And I mean, the story I tell is that I got the gig off of a Facebook post that I posted about <laughs> some completely different gig. It was like Dead Island. And I said something about the um, uh, music implementation on that game. And then Alex saw it and then he was like, ooh. And then he, you know, asked me to send in a demo of uh, something that sounded, quote unquote, ancient and mysterious because you'll obviously you can't just say tomb raider over the phone yeah of yet. course yeah yeah <laughs> but um you know yeah okay sure it was like a facebook post that kind of prompted this but um it was the fact that i had you know however many years of of interacting with him and with like you know so many other audio directors and and sound designers throughout the industry while i was at lucas that made that transition a lot less like you know starting from square one Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, I think what you've highlighted there is definitely the importance of putting yourself out there and going to things like GDC. You know, it's amazing what can happen and you never, like you say, you never know what can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So would you say there's been a moment so far that has been the most challenging for you in your career? Um, well, ironically, despite what I just said, <laughs> that transition still was not easy. I mean, Oh yeah, I can imagine, you know, cause remember I was, you know, I'm living in San Francisco, which is an incredibly, even back then in, in 2013, uh, you know, still an incredibly expensive city. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, you only have so many months that you can live here before it's over. <laughs> and I don't want to have yeah. to, you know, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it was, it was very intense. Um, that was, that was very difficult to, uh, kind of deal with emotionally for obvious reasons. Well, yeah, I um, can imagine. Yeah, that must have been quite an ordeal. Oh, yeah. But as far as games go, um, I would say the two most difficult projects that I've ever worked on were Monkey Island 2 Special Edition and uh, this Call of Duty game as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, the for Call of Duty World War II, it was, it, it's difficult for semi-obvious reasons. I mean, it's, you know, it was like a, two hour score. I only had about six months to write it. And wow, what was tricky? Yeah, well, the real tricky part, though, was that I mean, this is a incredible um, sounds team. Uh, you know, they obviously have a great pedigree. But the thing is, yeah. they're very, um, they're very hands on, uh, which ultimately, I think made the score like 100 times better than if they were just like, hey, do your thing, do whatever. You know. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, you know, like I would have to sometimes do just revision upon revision upon revision of right, these different okay. cues. And the thing about that is you have to you have to develop some way of getting like a very exceptionally thick skin about things. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Not not just in like, oh, I'm not, you know, insulted or whatever, but also just in a in your creative vision. You can't get to that point where you're you're just kind of pressing buttons and doing what someone else tells you. Like you always have to try to write good music almost despite what they tell you. That's actually like what you're being hired for is that, yeah, yeah. you know, it's almost like, yeah, okay. A lot of people can write really good music and that's, that's awesome. Great. But not many people can take direction and still come up with something unique and fresh and interesting every single time they, you know, they iterate that revision number or whatever. Oh, it must be horrendously difficult. It, 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 it I'm not going to lie. It, it absolutely is. Um, and that was one of the most difficult things about the projects. But then on the flip side of that, the other tricky part was that this is the first time that I had worked on something that was 
like real. I mean, yeah. this is a, a conflict that like actually happened. It's not yeah, yeah. a fantasy thing. And I've done fantasy no so long. Here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've done, I've done fantasy so long, and and you know that has a certain character to it. You can embellish the orchestra. Yeah. You can, you know, you can almost write as complicated music as you want. But when it's something that actually happens, it's like, okay, how do you convey that without sounding too distant or too overly like historical or you know too heroic? And you know, how do you how do you pull that off? I would say that this game probably had the most complicated and delicate music direction of anything that I've ever worked on, kind of by far. But again, a nice upshot of that is that it's also, I think, the most cohesive score that I've ever written. Like, you can listen to the whole score and everything kind of sounds... It always it always kind of has this same vibe to it. Yeah. Um, it always has this sort of... Everything kind of glues together. And uh, again, I, I completely attribute that to you know the way that the teams over at Sledgehammer and Sony were very insistent that every single cue in the game has to sound like our game. Yeah, it can't ever sound like you know Call of Duty generic or like you know shooter generic or orchestral generic. Like it always has to sound like this one specific game. It's almost to the point where like none of the music even fits for like any other game. It's like, well, it's only going to work here, so you better do it, better do it well. Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it's nice and unique. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and in a weird way, because it's like, well, you know, it's uniqueness, but it's very engineered uniqueness, if that makes sense. Like it's very intentional. Oh yeah, I fully understand. Yeah, kind of calculated uniqueness. Yeah, like, I mean, the way that the game honestly works is every time that I came up with anything that the dev team or the Sony team liked, I would just like, yes, okay, we're doing that. We're, we're going to use that as much as possible. <laughs> because it's like, the way I describe composing for a lot of games is like, imagine you're in a blizzard and just the wind is going everywhere. Everything is pure white. There's probably a polar bear just stopping, just waiting for you to slip up. <laughs> And you have no way, no idea which way is north, but you have these like sticks with flags on them. I think this is probably a level in Final Fantasy VII, but I'm just going to say off this sounds that. very, very <laughs> reminiscent of that Final Fantasy VII bit where you're stuck uh, in a snowstorm. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, every time that you come up with something that works, you just stick one of those flags down. That's your pillar, and you just use that, and you just go from pillar to pillar, just trying to figure out, okay, what can I do that's that's just going to unify this and then just lead us gradually towards, uh, towards the goal. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what, um, you know, I think what made this, this score have so much of like a signature character to it. Like I very, um, intentionally had these very specific signature sounds that I came up with, um, that I mentioned in other interviews too, like the idea of the, the haze of war, you know, that was that was like a whole suite of different sounds that I created based on, um, you know, war machinery and weaponry and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. And then incorporated into the soundtrack. And then uh, there's the memory of war, which is this one a little bit more specific sonic idea of like these trumpets and horns playing these arrhythmic fanfares. And then I'd use that almost like a pad with a bunch of delays and, and effects and whatnot. Um, and then, all of, of course, like all of the different uh, melodic themes. But every single cue in the game use some combination of these different things. And I think that's what makes it cohesive. And the reason why is because 
I was so scared to screw up that I was like, okay, well, anything that already worked, I'm just going to keep using that as much as humanly possible. <laughs> Excellent. That's the only way we're going to get this done. Good thing to stick to, you know, once you find something that sticks, like, right, that's it. That's good. We're going with that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So before we go full on talking about um, Call of Duty World War II, I just wanted to touch briefly on how you said that Monkey Island 2 Special Edition was also one of the most challenging projects oh, yeah. for you. So why is that? What was so challenging about that one? If you'll indulge me, I'd like to tell a very... I'll try to go as quickly as possible and tell a short story. <laughs> tell a tale so, for us. <laughs> yeah, so GDC 2007, and a bunch of audio, um, audio folks are getting together for an early dinner. Um, in fact, actually, uh, I think the late Jory Prum was the one who uh, brought us all together and introduced us to um, some of the classic LucasArts audio people. So it was, uh, it was, this is before I, I worked at LucasArts, right, um, okay. about a year and some change before it. So it was uh, me and like Damien was there and uh, Michael Land as well. And uh, I think maybe Peter McConnell was there too. Okay, but we cool. went to one of the um, restaurants in Chinatown. And anyways, I, big round table and I'm seated next to Michael Land. And I was like, wow, you, you developed iMuse. That's so amazing. Oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And he's saying like, yeah, you know, we, we did this whole iMuse thing. And he proceeded to describe to me the horror story of iMuse, oh, right. which very specifically was on Monkey Island 2, that very first island. Um, oh, gosh, what, Scab Island was the first, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And um, this town area was unique in that it had a main track that's playing outside, but then it had all of these different rooms. You know, you can go into the cartographer's office, you can go to the bar the little hotel or whatever. And wherever you went, the music would always develop this cons consistent melody. Yeah. So outside it's the main track, but then you go into like the bar and it seamlessly transitions into, uh, you know, like a, a thing with, I think, saxophone or something. Yeah. And then no matter where it is in the piece, you know, the game is counting measure by measure. And if you're at, say, measure 13, it plays a unique transition to go from measure 13 of the bar music into measure whatever of the outside music. Right, okay. So that it always has, like, it's what I would call, like, a melodically accurate transition. Yeah. It always sounds seamless. It always sounds perfect. And, you know, they did Rather this. Rather than just, like, two tracks fading in and out together. Exactly, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very unique for every single measure in every single one of these rooms using uh, this, these inordinately complicated MIDI files. Yeah. And he told me about this and you know, he explained like, yeah, so this one area took us like two months to do. <laughs> and I, I, I swear, I'm not making this up. I thought to myself at that moment, wow, that's crazy overkill. I hope I never have to do anything like that. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> Three years later or four years, whatever. And that's, you know, what's coming on my lap, except here's the funny part. We had just done um, Monkey Island 1 Special Edition. And I think that um, the, the music supervisor at the time, Jesse Harlan, had kind of spearheaded that. I think I was, I was busy on like uh, Force Unleashed or something. Yeah. One of, one of those smaller franchises, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of those little titles. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't do too much other than playing uh, woodwind instruments for that one. But it was like a 22-minute soundtrack. And uh, they had... If I remember correctly, like they had all of the MIDI files and it was all general MIDI. So it was like fairly easy to recreate. And they also had um, like a 1990, 
five like CD version of the game or something like that. Oh wow! Okay. So they actually they actually didn't need to do anything for the classic version. Um, all they did was just uh, re-render those. It was like CD audio, so yeah, they just yeah. like used that for the classic edition, and then for the uh, special edition. Um, Jesse rearranged these um, these pieces. I think either 22 minutes or like 22 pieces. I forget exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, there was no real interactivity. It was just room based. So whatever room you were in, that corresponded with one of the um, one of the songs. So it was like, okay, cool, yeah. And he had about give or take six or seven months to to do that, if I remember correctly. And then Monkey Island Two rolls out. And it's about 200-something minutes of music. Yeah, yeah. And I don't even remember how, like, something on the order of, like, 300 transitions or possible transitions um, throughout the game, little transitional segments. And then just the, you know, one of the most complicated music interactivity systems that had ever been done for games at all. And that was given to me, <laughs> <laughs> except I had only, like, two or three months to do all of this and like half the music budget for live performers that he had on Mokad okay, one. That's amazing. So it was like this <laughs> mind boggling. And, and this is where I learned to just, well, two things. One, I learned that, you know, every problem that you have, you have to just start, just solve the easiest part first yes. and just keep planting those flags, planting those pillars <laughs> in the blizzard. So that eventually you'll, you'll figure out what to do later on. Uh, and two, it's, uh, you know, pardon the expression, but it's kind of where I learned how to be a little bit of a hard ass. Like it's the part where it was like, well, guess what? You only have this amount of money to work with and you only have this amount of time to work with. And these are the people that you're working with. Yeah. You got to make it work. You know, whatever you got to do, you got to make it work. You know, this has to come together. There's no, there's no failure. Yeah. Especially because, you know, this is such a beloved franchise and a beloved game in the franchise. And, uh, I mean, not many people know this, but the the LucasArts adventure game community is incredibly strong. And they these are, you know, crazy smart people who have deconstructed every aspect of these games. I mean, honestly, they knew more about the games than, than we did, especially when I first started the project. Yeah. And if I were to just screw up, <laughs> they would have our heads. I mean, that would be a, it would be a wrap. So, um yeah, it was an unbelievable amount of pressure. I, I'm not sure that I've ever worked so hard on a video game in my entire life, and I, I hope I never I never do ever again, because it was at a point where... You shouldn't like, say that. You know what happened last time? You know, yeah, <laughs> you well... Hoped that you never had to do something <laughs> like that. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully nothing like that will ever happen. I, I mean, I, I, I would probably not survive, honestly. I mean, it was it was at the point where... You know, no kidding. Like, just health problems were coming up because I was oh, just wow, working. yeah, just brutal. Trip, like little, literal triple all-nighters. Sometimes without even sleeping, wow. not even at the office. Just you know, trying to make all this stuff come together. I had to. One of the biggest time sinks was I had to buy, on my own dime, like a hardware uh, MIDI renderer. All right, okay. Uh, an MT32, which is like a common synthesizer that a lot of gamers bought back in the yeah. day to play these games. And, you know, it wasn't general MIDI. It was like before that, which meant that I had oh, wow. to do these crazy like translations to go from this, you know, whacked out MIDI format to something that my computer could read so that then it could talk to the MT32. It sounds like a really fun 3 a.m. pipe dream. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that that took forever. But then I also had to arrange 
a bunch of music and then supervise the other arrangers that worked on the project and then work out all of the implementation, which took forever. And thankfully, we had this like godsend of a programmer from a different project who we were surreptitiously stealing during his lunch breaks to code our, our engine. I mean, it was it was just this mind boggling <laughs> ordeal. It and I can't insane. believe it. Yeah, I, I honestly can't believe that we pulled it off. It should never have happened. But, um, you know, we had we had such great people on the team and everyone was really focused and dedicated and and it came together. But I, I sincerely hope that no one else has to go through anything remotely close <laughs> to that ever again, uh, because it was painful. Literally, yeah, it definitely sounds like the most challenging project you've worked on <laughs> for sure. Oh, yeah. And at least like physically challenging. I mean, you know, like it's not fun when you're working on a game so so long and so hard that you know you're having to be rushed to the er for stomach ulcers and shit oh like God, that wow. that's Bloody that's hell. that's the point where it's like is this all really worth it like, <laughs> yeah that's when you so, question your life choices <laughs> yeah like what brought me to this point where you know some video game that yeah so yeah so there's that <laughs> <laughs> well i guess that might also tick the box on my next question which was going to be which one are you most proud of um, but I think you should be proud you made it through that <laughs> by the sounds of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, just satisfying some of the most hardcore and picky fans for like any franchise, um, you know, that, that, that really means something to me. Um, but the funny thing is that it, it's kind of hard for me to play favorites on my scores because, you know, I mean, I've, I've been so just so unbelievably lucky with how many different franchises that I've been able to step into. Oh yeah. For sure. And, um, I mean, from, you know, there's the Lara Croft game and that, you know, I, I love just how personal that score was. It's, it was almost like a playlist of like cool, interesting techniques that I, I just enjoy listening to. And it was, it was kind of a blank slate of, you know, just write whatever. And so I kind of just did that. And then, you know, the Star Wars first assault score, um, you know, again, that was my first solo score for a major project, and I developed that whole interactive system for it. And uh, you know, it, it it just was very special to me. And then, of course, there's Call of Duty, which you know was a dream project that I'd wanted to work on since you know like early early college. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a cheesy answer, but uh, it, I I don't even really know if I can play favorites because uh, again, I've I've just been so unbelievably lucky to be able to work on all of these things. Well, no, yeah. And, um, you know, from one franchise to the next, I guess we should talk about possibly one of the biggest franchises, if not the biggest franchise in video games, Call of Duty. You know, that's that's quite a feat to have to work for, for that franchise as well, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the funny thing is that it was, it was daunting for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, one, yeah, it's a big name title. Yeah. You know, it's... I mean, you're basically... if. If you're doing a Call of Duty game, you're almost guaranteed to make, like, at, at I think the lowest selling recent Call of Duty game, even still, it was the top selling game of that entire year. <laughs> yes. Even though they they were like, oh man, this didn't sell as much as it could. It's like, you beat every single game. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they'd be like, oh, we only sold one billion. Oh. I know. Like, it's like, <laughs> mind boggling. So there's that. And then there's, of course, like the extraordinarily hardcore fans of that series oh man yeah there's they're intense fans yeah and it, it, you know I, I learned to kind of appreciate this franchise back when i was working on star wars first assault um because of course we do a lot of competitive analyses and you know you look at call of duty and it's just like okay this is exactly why 
millions upon millions of people play this game is because they have nailed down the control, the level design, yeah. the storytelling, like everything. Like they know exactly what they're doing and they don't compromise. It's, it's always been a 60 FPS game, even when like practically the entire rest of the industry went to 30 FPS at some point in the PS3 era. But COD was just like, nah, screw that. We're just going to stay 60 FPS. We're going to stay true to, you know, the game that we want to make. And it's going to be ridiculously difficult, but we're just going to do it. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I mean, this is also a franchise where if I'm, I'm, I'm going to get the names wrong, I'm sure. But, you know, Hans Zimmer, Harry Gregson Williams, Grimey Ravel, uh, Michael Giacchino, of course. Yeah. All of these, you know, the biggest names in film scores have done call of duty games and now me yeah no, no <laughs> pressure like, wilbert you know no I pressure mean, at all like what have i done like why <laughs> it was on it like a, a little bit confusing i was like why are they i mean i have like no one cares <laughs> about anything that i work on <laughs> literally no one cares that's why not true that's well, not true <laughs> <laughs> but but you see what i mean though is and it was it was daunting for those reasons but then and perhaps the most of all it was that you know, those original Michael Giacchino scores from the early, mid-2000s. Yeah. I mean, that's what I went to college studying. You know, and I'm in college. I'm, I'm sitting there, and I, I did tons of study just kind of on my own outside of schoolwork. And I'm looking at these, you know, these scores right next to, you know, the Rite of Spring, you know, Petrushka, you know, like Schoenberg, all of these, you know, 20th century art music pieces. Well, it's like yeah. right there on the same level. I'm studying them both. Um, I'm writing, you know, model compositions in the style as well. And I continue to do that, you know, even after college, even during LucasArts. In fact, my main theme from uh, Star Wars First Assault, the melody from that is actually taken from a model composition that I wrote in this sort of like World War II shooter sound. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's like, okay, well, now you get to do it for real. What do you got? That's awesome. And, <laughs> you know, like that's obviously a very uh, intimidating kind of uh, kind of place to be where it's like, okay, well, now you're up in front of the, the... The way that I describe working as a composer in the game industry is imagine you're in like the most crowded room ever. It's like a, like a stage and everyone is super crowded. And then there's like a raised auditorium platform with like one microphone. And not everyone has like the kung fu or like sharp nails or whatever to like scratch their way up to the front, you know, because everyone's just clawing and just trying to make it up to that microphone. Yeah. But every once in a while, someone gets up there. And what do you have to say? Yeah. And so if you don't, if you get there and you don't have something interesting to say, then you've just, you know, ruined your opportunity. There's, there's, you know, there's really no turning back. Like, that's it. So this was kind of my moment to have the microphone and, you know. Yeah, this was your chance to say something. Exactly. And this is sort of what I've been, in a way, preparing for, for like 10, 12 years. So like, now what? <laughs> and that, that, was, that was where it was, it was, it was very daunting. I mean, when I first started the score, it was much, uh, I mean, it, it, it evolved quite a bit. Like the first sketches that I sent over, to Sony and Sledgehammer were very much in that classic Michael Giacchino sound for the original Call of Duty, especially. Yeah. Um, and they said like, you know, they mentioned to me, yeah, you know, this is a modern score. So you, we want some, something about it to make it sound like it's written in 2017 and not in like 2004 or whatever. 
So I, I did incorporate some synthesizer, but uh, it really, you know, it really needed to evolve beyond that and be its own thing. So they they said, yeah, hey, you know, thanks for this, you know, Franz Waxman sounding <laughs> 1940s <laughs> sounding thing, but we really need to focus more on like the story and the personal nature. Like, how do you take something like that and create a sound that's very intimate, but also very gritty and dark? You know, how do you make something that's telling a historical story, but making it relatable and personal and, and contemporary? Yeah. And so that was kind of the challenge. This is why I say that this game is probably the most difficult uh, music direction of anything I've ever worked on is because you're always walking that fine line between those different extremes. And so like, yeah, that's, that's that once, once I kind of got started working, that's the point where it got even more intimidating because it, it just takes so long to, to figure out exactly, you know, where you are on, on that continuum. Yeah, I bet. And I mean, we're talking about a franchise here that has around, I mean, not including the add-ons or the spin-offs or other console versions, but about 18 in the series, right? So, you know, it's such a a long-running franchise. What what kind of differed in terms of the brief you were given for this? I mean, you say it was meant to be more personal, more intimate, but did they specifically say ignore all the other games? You know, you know what's funny? They didn't necessarily say that, but I never and this is this is kind of kind of blow your mind. I didn't really receive any reference tracks for this score. Oh wow. Yeah, like you would you would think that that they would say, okay, it has to sound like this like Hans Zimmer thing, you know, whatever. Um, but they really didn't. They, I, I don't know exactly what that meant. Like it could mean that they trusted me enough. It could mean that they really wanted things to sound um, like their own, like they really wanted to have their own sound that was different from, uh, especially from like the current generation of, of um, Call of Duty games. Yeah. Uh, from Ghosts onward. Um, it could have been that, but for whatever reason, I really didn't get any, you know, make it sound like this, um, which is actually very challenging. That's quite refreshing, actually. It, it is. But I mean, at the same time, it's I'm sure that at the time I probably was like, oh, come on, just please tell me what. The <laughs> <laughs> Anything. <laughs> just a Spotify. Link, yeah. Something. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm writing, you know, one sketch after another. And, um, you know, they had great feedback, but it was. You know, I'm I'm just sitting here terrified because I'm just like, am I just gonna get fired? Like, what's going on? Like, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they didn't necessarily spell out exactly what was different about this one. I kind of had to figure that out from reading the narrative brief, and you know, they they gave like a, a brain dump kind of narrative presentation on the game while I was visiting uh, Sledgehammer for the first time. Oh, cool! In uh, I think late January, early February, something like that. But I mean, when you take the whole story and like summarize it just very quickly to someone, it doesn't necessarily sound all that different from, you know, what you've already played. It's just it's the actual execution of it and the fact that you're looking at, you know, these these characters that are really well developed, I thought, throughout the course of the game. I mean, they, these are very dynamic characters and they they kind of become a team organically through gameplay. Oh, yeah. It's not it's not like a. It, and this is what honestly surprised me so much about the game is that, you know, everyone counts. Like, no character is just this ancillary whatever. But, like, you get to know every single one of them. And they all have unique personalities. And you remember, you know, the, things about their past, their names. You know, whereas 
other games it's like okay yeah sure you know this is cool and all but it's the characters really aren't as important yeah but i think once i once i realized that that was the direction we were going that's sort of what prompted me to almost like think smaller if that makes sense like it, it became obvious that we didn't necessarily want to be big and epic and celebratory but instead it's like we'll focus on it's what I always call scoring in the first person, which which means that, like, instead of telling a story that's, you know, you're from a distance, you're this distant narrator, you know, looking on, you know, with your little feather pen from, like, you know, 100 miles away looking at what's happening, you're actually right there. So how do the emotions change when you're, you know, standing there right beside the protagonist experiencing the same things um, as them? And uh, sort of once I had that in mind, then the rest you know, one idea after a next kind of made a little more sense and became more clear. Yeah, sure. Um, but that was def it was definitely uh, a challenge to kind of get to that point where I sort of understood what the game should sound like. Um, it, it it wasn't it wasn't as easy as you know, like some games. Like I I see the first couple you know moments of gameplay and I'm just like, yep, there you go. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> and this one, it was it was. A mystery. I mean, it's it probably took me longer. I mean, I was looking at some files earlier because I'm going to do a, a GDC talk in uh, March. Oh, cool. About this score, but I was looking at some of the files and like the, the whole date created, date modified, you know, all that. And I realized that among all the different revisions I was doing, we spent about you know almost a solid month just on the main theme alone. Oh, wow. Just making sure that we had one piece that kind of was like the palette of what the whole score should be like, which obviously is very difficult because I like just started writing it, you know, <laughs> like that's the first thing that I'm writing. And so well, it's yeah, like, of course, hey, yeah. So basically do this whole score, but just like now, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, once I, once I did that, then it was more or less, most of the problems were solved and it was just kind of a matter of bringing something new and interesting in like the details of each piece. Oh, right, but, yeah. um, you know, this is again why I say it's very cohesive scores because the core of it, it always has this feel. Um, it always, like I, I have a tiny little bit of um, synesthesia and the way that I structured this and one of the other um, main theme uh, sketches uh, was that I kind of looked at the, some screenshots of the game and I realized that they were using this sort of filmic color filter okay. uh, that kind of gave everything a slightly desaturated, you know, there was lots of like blues and purples and it had this film grain effect. Yeah. And that's actually where I came up with that whole haze of war idea was just trying to match that visual aspect with the sound. Um, and then also the harmony kind of goes along with that a little bit as well. And, and so basically it was like, okay, well, whatever you can do to kind of match the presentation, do that because you're not going to get any kind of reference. You know, they're not going to explicitly tell you exactly what to do, but they know it when they see it. And yeah. Yeah, that's of kind of where, uh, where I went with that. Yeah. And it's, it's obviously doing really works really well for the, for the game. And, and you were saying earlier that you, you incorporated, sounds from things like war machinery and weaponry and you also did some unusual performance and recording techniques right oh yeah yeah um so about the war machinery that again that was kind of like the haze of war concept yeah and 
basically, uh, I was I was still writing the main theme, and in the sort of chorus section, the doo, 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 that part, um, I wanted some sort of like a driving rhythm, and originally I used some sort of generic like big taiko drums or like dull drums ensemble whatever. Yeah. And I sent that in and they were like, cool, we like this, but can you do something else for that, you know, big drum? We don't want to do the whole big epic drums thing for this game. And I was like, okay, okay. Um, you know, what else do I got? And I had this random idea of like, well, what if I used what's what's called musique concrète, which is like the idea of using sounds in the world yeah. as a part of the music. And so I, I shot over an email directly to the audio director and I was like, hey, Dave, do you have any kind of like, you know, like World War II vehicle sounds or something that I can use? And he's like, ha do I? And he said, you've got like 12 gigabytes, at least 12 gigabytes of, of all this like, you know, tanks, planes, um, you know, I, I think there were some explosions in there, uh, just all of this stuff. And I was like, wow, okay, awesome, cool. So I went through that, I searched, I filtered by certain things wow. that I thought would sound That's a cool. lot to go through. It, it was, I mean, I didn't listen to like everything, but like I, I had some ideas in mind of like, okay, well, what if I have this like driving, like chugga, 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 chugga kind of rhythm on that? What would that be? And I looked up some of the steam trains and it was, I think, um, a certain microphone position that was near the tracks. And I found one file that was like approximately the correct uh, speed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I just took that and I time stretched it and put some effects on and that's actually what you're listening to, you know, in that uh, segment where it sort of really picks up and the strings are playing their full section uh, staccato stuff. But uh, the other part of it was um, before that section where it's just the horn and the solo violin. Yeah. You'll hear that there's this kind of weird uh, clapping almost kind of noise. That's actually the string section playing a technique called colenio batuto which is where uh, traditionally they would, instead of bowing the string, they actually tap the string with the wooden part of the bow. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but what I did was, instead of having them do that, because I thought that'd be kind of messed up to ask a bunch of like professional musicians to ruin their bows by like, <laughs> yeah. hitting like, the you know, wood. Uh, I bought a bunch of wooden dowels. They're about 18 inches or something long. And you know, I cut them so that they were uh, appropriately lengthy. Yeah. And I handed those out to the whole orchestra and we said, OK, so we want some of you to hit the strings with these wooden dowels. We want others just randomly to like just tap on the body of your instruments uh, just with your hands and others to tap on the strings themselves, like on the um, on the neck of the instrument. And uh, pitch doesn't matter. Just, you know, get this rhythm. And we you know wrote out the rhythm for them. Uh, and yeah, they did that. And that's what gives that sort of. It almost has like a marching quality to it, but that's yeah. like that first um, kind of percussive sound that you hear uh, when the chorus begins, that um, that that sort of like big, wide, uh, kind of clappy type type thing. And it was, it was techniques like that. I mean, like we, we had the pleasure of working with the Nashville Orchestra. Like it was, um, they just call themselves the Nashville Scoring Orchestra. Okay, cool. And what's what's great about them is that they're very... Uh, very versatile and you can almost just ask them in English, you know, which is my native language, you know, just, you know, do this thing. And <laughs> we were able to get away with so many, you know, interesting sounds and, and techniques because we didn't need to like each, you know, 
I look up in my like music book, you know, encyclopedia. Oh, what's this sound? Okay, this is what I call it in like Italian. And then they're sitting there on the stage. They're like, what the heck is this? Oh, let me look up on my encyclopedia. <laughs> and maybe someone can explain. No, you just tell them like, hey, play this like kind of out of tune. And they'll do it, <laughs> you know. Awesome. Uh, and that was another part of that whole Haze of War concept was these string techniques like um, – you know, gra gradually detuning a little bit by like a quarter tone, but like on your own, so that everyone is doing it slightly differently. Or... Yeah, so everyone's slightly out. Exactly. Yeah, or like random uh, crescendos. So everyone's kind of doing this note slightly weirdly. And um, a technique called overpressure was uh, really big on this score. And that's when you're bowing the string as normal, except you can kind of bow it slightly too slow and slightly too hard. And oh, okay, yeah. you can control this and the more this like the slower and harder you bow in this incorrect fashion, the more it it almost adds this like distortion effect to it. Oh, wow. And yeah. then when you have the whole orchestra doing that, it, it literally sounds like I'm turning on like a flame distortion, like a radio distortion. And you can control it too. like you can control, um, you know, just how much of the actual tone are you getting versus how much distortion are you getting? And uh, we use this all over the score uh, to just get this kind of, again, this sort of like blue filmic film grain haze uh, to a lot of the uh, sustaining string parts. Yeah, I mean, those are some really interesting techniques that I've not heard of before. So they're really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And again, a lot of it was influenced just by, you know, the visuals and seeing, okay, well, this is what the game looks like. They're clearly going for this um, for this aesthetic. You know, what can I do musically uh, to support that. Yeah, and, and so have you used any of these techniques before or are these all just kind of fresh and new for this one? Um, this, is probably, this is probably just for this one. I don't think there's any sample library that does this. And um, yeah, I don't, like none of my other scores that I can think of, uh, especially the ones that I had the pleasure of, you know, working with a live orchestra on, uh, none of them really had that much of like a grit to them. So these kinds of techniques... You know, the, people don't play that way for a reason. <laughs> like <there's> a, <laughs> it's not, not healthy it. for your instruments. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's a reason people bow at the correct speed and play in tune. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it's only when you're doing a score that really needs this kind of horrific element to it uh, that you would you would ever even think to do something that strange and, and kind of, quote unquote, wrong. Yeah. Or maybe like a horror score or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't really done any, um, orchestral horror scores since then. I mean, the only horror scores that I've worked on really are, uh, game jams that I do each year. Okay, cool. You do game jams as well. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah. I work with a group here in Seattle called space octopus studios, oh, which cool. is just such a silly, you know, but it's, it's, it's kind of the brainchild of one of my, um, coworkers from back at LucasArts, uh, this, uh, senior multiplayer designer at, uh, uh, 343 named Pat Wren and uh, yeah you know it's it's a bunch of Microsoft guys and Bungie guys and Nintendo guys and uh, and me and like monolith folks and just folks from all over who are kind of AAA based but we you know every year we get together for two days 48 hours and we just make a game but it's always like a, a horror game like there's like a game jam series called Asylum Jam oh, okay, uh, right. each, each, each Halloween and the, yeah we just do a horror themed thing and um, each year I try something different, uh, like a completely different type of sound. Uh, this year I collaborated with uh, Kazuma Jinuchi, 
from uh, 343. He's the composer of Halo 5. Oh, awesome. And, and Halo 4 uh, and Metal Gear. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. like, we, we got together and, um, you know, we, we did this sort of, like, Silent Hill-ish, but much more synthesized, like, halfway between Silent Hill and Stranger Things kind of That sounds kind amazing. Of sound. I love the Silent Hill and Stranger Things soundtrack. So that oh, yeah, yeah, epic. yeah. It was, it was super fun and uh, caused us some amazing music for it. Um, but uh, anyways, like, you know, I don't usually do, um, I don't usually have this opportunity to do horror music. And I wouldn't necessarily say that Call of Duty is a horror score, but it definitely incorporates a lot of those ideas and, and techniques. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So I really want to touch back on how you composed the whole score in Reaper, right? You did the whole thing in Reaper. Is this the first time you've done the whole thing in Reaper or is this? Oh no, I've been on, I mean, what was the first score that I did entirely? I would say maybe the Monkey Island Special Edition was probably the first major score that I did entirely in Reaper. Oh wow, okay, cool. Um, but the first score that I did in just one Reaper project file uh, was Lara Croft. Well, I mean, the first major score was Lara Croft in the Temple of Osiris. Yeah. Um, I mean, for smaller kind of indie projects, then yeah, I would I would do that as well. But I mean, if it's like, you know, only five pieces, then it's not, I suppose it's not as, you know, like I, I posted on Twitter about like, yeah, hey, I did this whole score in just one session file and I had the big screenshot. And that kind of blew up. I was like, what? You're crazy. No, no, no. I don't think <laughs> you realize like, it's that's not actually that impressive at all. <laughs> it's, it's just that no one really had thought, for whatever reason, no one had thought to do that. But like, it's it makes almost no difference. It like I I've just been doing it that way since basically since forever. Yeah. It's it's not it's not really a big deal at all to uh, to score in that fashion. Um, I'm not. I don't remember exactly if I did Star Wars First Assault like that. I, in fact, I completely don't remember how i did that one but uh, i i definitely did lara croft in just one file and it was totally fine yeah um it, there's no in fact you know what i do remember i didn't do star wars that way because i couldn't figure out something about midi files that uh, i would have needed in order to um yeah it, there was something about that that i that i couldn't work out but then i i figured it out for lara croft and then i've just been doing it that way ever since well, that's awesome and obviously reaper like i said before is is growing more and more in popularity and everyone's kind of wowing over the possibilities that you can do especially with all of the bespoke, bespoke scripting you can um, incorporate within reaper but did you find anything that was quite challenging working with reaper or did you find anything that you're like right okay i can't do this in reaper i'll do it and then import it into reaper um, not really like the, I mean, honestly, the, and I, I hate to say this, but the biggest challenge of Reaper is that the MIDI functionality, especially the, uh, piano roll, right. Okay. Uh, I'm not a huge fan. Like it, it gets very annoying. I mean, by now I've, I'm just used to it, but you know, back when I was in cakewalk, I could just be working on one thing and then I could, I think I would just press T and then it would just show me all the tracks and it's like, okay, yeah, well I want to work on oboes now or something. And then I would yeah. just go right there. It would just pop up, whereas Reaper is clip based, so you can't really do that because I mean, and it has it has a similar thing where it's like, oh yeah, you could do this in Reaper, but it's, it doesn't really it doesn't really work the way you would expect it to, and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's just kind of a pain, and it's the worst is if you have like two different um, clips displayed on the same piano roll, and the behavior is all wonky, and you just don't know what's going on. So like, it forces you to work in a certain way. 
unfortunately. But I mean, you know, now what? Ten years into using it, uh, I, I'm not. It, it doesn't really slow me down at all. It's just sort of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things. You're but, like, if you just change that one thing. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but then, like, Reaper works this way for for good reason. So I'm I'm not expecting them to change anytime soon. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's really the only the only downside. If I if I had one feature request, um, it would be that. So Reaper has track groups, which were incredibly useful for creating stems. Right, yeah. And, you know, and the way that the Sony team works, I mean, they, they mixed and edited the score. So I would have to send sometimes upwards of like 30 stems per track uh, just so that they had, you know, as much independence over the different elements as, um, as they needed. Yeah. But the problem with that is that in order for stems to work in like a standardized way, I would need to have some sort of like a standard like okay well here's here's like this type of track for the the entire game and so every time i would introduce some new sound or some new like type of sound i would just have to get another type of stem track and so it ended up i think there's like 40 something possible stems that i could print right okay except reaper only allows for 32 groups <laughs> so oh, right <laughs> it much more laborious and manual than I really would have liked, uh, which is not the end of the world, but I'm hoping that maybe we can expand that to 64 so that I don't have to very manually go through this whole process. But again, that's, that's a very small thing. It's only going to apply to like a very small number of uh, titles that I work on. Yeah. And all, and all, all doors have their own restrictions, right? None, none of them are perfect. Otherwise that would be the only one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, it, it, it's it's such a nitpick. Um, the the only thing that's difficult about doing a whole score in just one thing is that you do run into some performance issues as you go along. Like, you know, someone was asking me like, "Oh, how long does it take to open?" And it, it's twenty four minutes to Whoa, open the file. Really? Well, remember, it's it's loading all the samples, and that's what like twenty gigs of samples or whatever. So it doesn't actually matter if the file is blank versus if it's like a five hour call of duty score, uh, it'll take the same, roughly the same amount of time to load. Yeah. But the real problem is that once you get to that point where you're like, okay, I'm like, you know, two hours into the score and you know, I've loaded so many instruments, then it's like, okay, well now you, because you can't really unload anything that you've already used, yeah. there's only 16 channels of MIDI. So if I want to load something else, I would have to get another instance of contact. And then who knows what that's going to do to my CPU? Who knows what that's yeah. going to do to the RAM? You know, it, it just kind of compounds and it just gets bigger and bigger. This, for some reason, like, you'd be surprised how much better this, you know, on the same machine, this Call of Duty score runs slightly better than the Lara Croft score did. Oh, okay. Um, which kind of boggles my mind because it's at least twice as long, or no, not twice as long, but like, it, it's significantly lengthier, and I think it actually has more tracks too because I had solo strings in um, Call of Duty, whereas Lara Croft didn't. Right. Okay. But um, for whatever reason, I think I, I've just gotten um, proficient at being as efficient as possible with how I'm loading things in contact, um, with what I'm not loading. Like sometimes I'll descript certain sample libraries so that yeah. they're just playing samples and not using these elaborate like mic scripts and whatnot. Um, and I've just kind of advanced that to the point where, yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, VST list for Call of Duty right now, and it's it's not 
conservative by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that Lara Croft was was even bigger than this. So like, yeah, I mean, it's it's its own thing, you know. Like, it's it's a different way of working, and I'm sure that other folks they do certain things that are much easier to work with than how I have this set up. Yeah. But uh, there's so many advantages to working in like just one project file for the whole game that uh, that's just in the way that I've done it since, you know, since like 2013. Well, I can imagine it being quite tidy, actually. And when you need to jump to different things or use similar motifs to what you had before, for example, or something like that, then you can just quickly jump between markers and just be like, oh, okay, yeah, I was doing that here and doing that there. And it's all just Absolutely. there. Like, you know. Exactly. I mean, this is a project where, you know, we would have one revision request after another. Um, uh, because again, they, they're very particular, both at Sony and at Sledgehammer. Yeah. And, you know, I couldn't just like stop and wait. I had to kind of move on. You know, they would always assign me at least two things at a time so that I would always have something to work on. Yeah. So like, yeah, you know, I would turn something in and immediately move on. And then if they say, hey, cool, we just need you to change this one little thing. Well, if I were doing it in different project files. Oh, God, yeah, that'd be a nightmare. Yeah, you have to keep opening them all. Yeah, like even even if I were using something like um, Vienna Ensemble, where I could keep the samples loaded, it still would take a long time to you know unload and then reload. And then uh, if I ever wanted to like compare things against projects, it would just be a pain. In, you know, so, uh, yeah, I made sure that, um, you know, it was very easy to just jump between different cues. It, it also made it easy to do different versions of cues. Yeah, I bet, yeah. Yeah, it's all just based on region markers. So I could just say like, okay, if this is an old version, I'll just make the region black and then use like a certain uh, naming convention for it. Yeah. And I'll just copy it over and then, okay, now I can do whatever I want um, in this new copy of the uh, revision. And like you mentioned, it, it was... Uh, very easy to copy over sound design elements and uh, solo recordings um, from one cue to another. Like I worked with uh, Sebastian Frey, who's our electric cello player. All right, cool. Um, he also was on Star Wars First Assault and on Lara Croft. I mean, I, I try to work with him as much as possible. He's one of my favorite musicians in the world. And uh, he did a bunch of percussive effects on the electric cello, where he's literally just kind of like slapping the body of the instrument or the strings in, in various rhythmic ways. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I would just take some, uh, basically a loop of what he's doing in a different cue and then use that in a new cue and it would just kind of work. And sometimes I would do that as like a temp and then get him to re-record. Sometimes I would just use it as is. Uh, it, it just worked really well. But if I were to use separate project files, then that would have taken forever. And, it, you know, I'm not even sure that that would have been possible if I would have had to like render it out and then bring it right back in. And yeah, and it might have stopped you from doing certain things as well. Exactly. Yeah, it would just be all this pain in the butt kind of crap. You know, that I just don't don't want to deal with. Uh, it's much easier to um, to just work in like one file. I can copy things over. I mean, the whole haze of war idea. So much of that was this sound design. You know, all of these steam trains and all these vehicles and explosions and whatnot. And a lot of the times I would just, you know, I would say, hey, I'm pretty sure I used like a synthesizer that did that, but I kind of recorded it wild. So I don't know how to get that sound back. Well, guess what? I can just grab it from another cue. <laughs> yeah, just and, go and back whatever and get it. I need. Exactly. Yeah. And whatever I need to do with it, you know, I can do whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, honestly, I think I think more people should at least entertain the idea of uh, doing entire projects in one file because it's it's a lot easier than you might you might imagine. 
Yeah, well, it sounds like it makes sense for a lot of, you know, methods and a lot of techniques, really. Absolutely, yeah. So you kind of mentioned contact and a couple of other instruments there. What were the main VSTs and instruments you were using? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's mostly contact five and uh, play. So I used Hollywood brass and Hollywood strings. Um, I, for woodwinds, I mostly used Spitfire Albion and the really old version of Vienna Symphonic Library, like back when it was on Giga Sampler. Uh, and <laughs> awesome. I've just, by this time, I've converted it over to Contact and done a bunch of editing so that it's um, very competitive with modern uh, modern stuff. You know, a good sample lasts forever, so you can always reprogram old stuff. That's quite impressive. So you've kind of got your own bespoke version that you've created from that. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, like some of this stuff, I, I would put certain effects on and then render it out and then resample it back in um, just to get a different sort of more realistic kind of sound to it than what's just possible with like the bass samples. Um, yeah, yeah. That's really cool though. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I am a sample developer. That's like, <laughs> that used to be my job. So it's like, if I didn't know how to do that, then we'd be in a lot more trouble. But uh, yeah, so I, you know, Albion, um, I mean, there's only uh bassoons and bass clarinets in this score um for various reasons we didn't use any high woodwinds but um let's see what i use a lot of sample modeling which is a company that does uh physically modeled uh brass and woodwind instruments so like that's that's the um first chair trombone and bass trombone right, by sample okay. model for this one and then um i i still use the 2004 east west silver tuba oh no way for some reason, I used to use yeah, that one. Some, yeah for some reason that just sounds better than everything i don't know why it's just i mean of course like again i resampled it and use all sorts of effects and whatnot um so it's in it's in contact now can't but, let go uh, of the sample developer in you can you you just yeah. i know well <laughs> again you know this it's it's been incredibly useful to have that skill because uh i mean if i were just using samples the way that they're presented there's no way that it would all fit in the you know this this computer only has like or my old machine that i i did this score on you know it's from 2011 you know so it's got a 2011 cpu and uh it's only got like 24 gigs of ram so you have to be very precise about exactly what do you need to spend your ram on um and so yeah being able to edit was was super useful well yeah i can i can imagine like you know those are kind of invaluable skills absolutely i think as a modern composer you should definitely learn how to edit in, in contact, um, no matter what kind of music you're writing, honestly. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there's a friend of mine, Will Bedford, who is a contact scripter and a sample library scripter as well. Um, and he definitely swears by it in terms of like it really, having that knowledge really helps him as a composer. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, this is kind of the topic of like, you know, what does it mean to be a contemporary composer, to be a modern composer? And even though, for whatever reason, I'm, most people think of me as being very traditional and in many ways I am, you know, I write on paper first. I don't, you know, just dive right into the sequencer and, yeah, and yeah. I do sort of old school ish sounding orchestral music a lot. But I mean, I, I would honestly argue that it's just as important to know how to use a synthesizer, how to use contact, how to use technology. Um, especially if you want to be competitive, like you can't, you can't just say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I, I render this out 
out of like Sibelius. And I know it sounds terrible now, but just wait till we get the live orchestra. You know, they, <laughs> you, you can't you can't say that because even I mean, even in Call of Duty, like we knew we were going to hire a live orchestra for this, but I would still receive revision requests that basically amounted to make this, you know, sound better. Yeah, make it sound more real. Exactly. Yeah, I would receive those requests. Uh, or like mixed notes or whatever. And the reason why was because they wanted two reasons. One, because I, I'm pretty sure that they would put some of my music just into the game for like, you know, testing it out, see if it works. Oh, yeah, probably, yeah. Um, and that's something that they mentioned to me um, even when I was kind of interviewing for the gig. They said, you know, like we really would like it if if someone's able to to do that so that we can try things out before we commit to it with the orchestra. Um, but the other part is that, you know, I mean, I mentioned I only had like six months. Well, the Sony team, I mean, they, they came together like crazy in the last, um, in the last couple months of the, of the scoring process with all of their edits and, and mixing. And they had to get those mixes done crazy fast. And the only way that it really worked was that because we had signed off on my mock-up mixes, you know, months before, uh, they could reference those as like, okay, well, this is what we want. So if we don't to avoid having like a ton of revision requests from you know from will like from me or from like the sidechamber team we can kind of just use that as a basis and then just kind of make it like better with our live orchestra and then all of their mixing prowess and whatnot well i mean it makes sense doesn't it like they need to know pretty much what it's going to end up sound like right exactly like you said you, you can't listen to a midi version and go oh yeah i fully understand how that's gonna <laughs> exactly yeah so they they really needed some sort of a guideline and, um, you know, very realistic mock-ups um, definitely helped them out a lot. Okay. So, I mean, we, we've covered some amazing stuff today and I, I would love to talk for hours more um, about even just the Call of Duty score, but I don't want to use up too much of your time. Um, but I am curious what lies in the near future for you now, Wilbur. I know you've done Call of Duty Modern Warfare, uh, sorry, not Modern Warfare, Call of Duty World War Two. Um, what lies in the near future for you now? Um, so there's a lot of stuff that, uh, unfortunately, I can't mention. Oh, of course, yeah, that, that you can tell us about due to the infamous NDAs. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know how it is. But, um, oh, yeah. I think that of the stuff that I can mention right now, uh, what's most near and dear to me is this project called A New The Distant Light. Um, it's an indie game. It's a 2.5D Metroidvania title. Oh, nice. Uh, that takes place on an alien asteroid and you're, you're Earth's final hope for like, you know, recolonizing, like, you know, like terraform all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but what's unique about this project is it's a game that has, well, a couple things. Number one, it's a game that has no dialogue. There's no voiceover to compete with. It's very atmospheric. And what's great is that the lead developer, um, Jeff Spoonhauer, he came at me and he said, okay, we want you for this game because you did Lara Croft. And I'm thinking like, okay, yeah, well, where are you going with this? And then <laughs> yeah. he sends me what he sends me, uh, his reference materials. And normally when you get reference tracks, it's like, what is it? It's going to be like some kind of Hans Zimmer thing. It's going to yeah. be born identity. It's going to be, you know, like it's, it's the standard, whatever. Um, he sends me Bartok, John Adams, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, Planet of the Apes, like all of this, like oh, wow. very, ad, you know, advanced and very modernist 20th century art music. Yeah, and very unique kind of techniques. Exactly, and... yeah. And at that point, I was like, okay, what is going on with this? <laughs> like, I have to get in on this. 
and uh, yeah, so the the score um, is very challenging. Yeah, and and it's 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 funny because it's it's unique in almost the exact opposite way that um, that Call of Duty World War Two was unique in that like it's almost it, it's it's very natural. It's not that I'm like pinning down like okay this works and this works and then I'm you know very consciously creating signature sounds, but instead it's more like an idea of this is an alien world, but they have their own civilization. That's like the the twist or whatever. Yeah, is that uh, they already have their whole all of their stuff is already set up. They've already been here, but you as a human are like unaware of all this stuff, and so it all seems crazy and weird and and strange to you. But in a funny way, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, and so that's why the whole twentieth century art music thing works perfectly for that because it's like that's exactly what you know, art music composers are trying to do. They're always trying to do something that is internally consistent and makes perfect sense, but is still new and, and fresh. And, yeah, it's and, still weird and wonderful, but familiar. Exactly, yeah. And just, you know, for the sake of being challenging and unique and, and sometimes just intentionally bizarre. And so that's what I've, I've you know, had the incredible pleasure of, of working with on this one is that, um, you know, I'm doing all kinds of weird things with the orchestra um, it's very complicated music. I mean, like, you know, a, a call, by the end of the Call of Duty project, I could bang out an action track, you know, like fairly quickly. And there was like a sort of process to it. But here, you know, this, I mean, this score, sometimes pieces will take me weeks and weeks to develop and to just figure out how is this, how am I going to pull this off for just like one simple level cue? I mean, it's, it's, it's very complicated in its execution. But the music direction actually is is quite simple. It's literally, you know, make something out there and weird, but internally consistent. Yeah, like the the actual art style and, and the way that the gameplay works is the exact same way. It's just like so dreamlike and bizarre and weird. But everything kind of just makes sense in this like almost kind of horrifying way. There's lots of motifs like the triangle, like our society is based on the rectangle. You know, you look at your monitor, that's a rectangle. You look at buildings, that's a rectangle. Yeah, you know, yeah. Theirs is, is triangle-based. And um, uh, specifically the Sierpinski gasket, which is like a fractal triangle. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what their whole um, society is based on, on that motif. And so it's like, you know, how, you, you've, you've taken like away some like grand axiom of how the entire world works and replaced it with something else. How does that sound musically? And that's what's what's always consistently fascinated me about this project. So that's that's sort of the the main um, the main uh, score that I've been working on uh, ever since um, Call of Duty World War II uh, wrapped up. I mean, I've been on this one on and off for a couple of years, uh, but um, yeah, that's that's the main thing that I can talk about right now. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds awesome, and what's really cool is that. Although I can tell it sounds like a big challenge, I can also hear how excited you are that it's that challenging. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't really like this about myself, but for some reason, I, I just don't write easy music. <laughs> I wish I could, though. Wouldn't that be fun? Like, why can't music just be fun? And like, just eat, why can't I just hold down like a like a pad and then play some like duduk on top of it? They call it. <laughs> but no, for some reason, like, it's always like, well, I, I guess in the back of my mind, in like a very masochistic way, I like writing music that's like just slightly too hard for me to pull off. <laughs> like just, you thrive just, on the stress. Yeah, like just it's like if you go to a concert, that the best concerts you can go to for like recitals, especially classical ones, 
are ones where the performer is doing something that's like just a tiny little bit beyond their level. Yeah. And so you can see that that struggle, like that, you know, if they're if they're so great that everything's easy, then it's almost kind of boring. But when you see them performing something that they're they're just barely pulling it off, uh, that's that's just so much more entertaining, I guess. And so I guess that's, you know, as on a subconscious level, I think that's kind of what I'm what I'm going for with all this. I guess you're seeing more of a performance then, if you know what I mean. When it's too easy, it's more just kind of like a rendition. Exactly. Yeah. You, know, you see more of their personal performance when they're they're pushing themselves. You know. Yeah, more personality comes out because that's when you see, you know, during that stress is when you see what they're really made out of. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I think musically it's the same way as well. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So then, I've got a fun question to finish off with now. If you could hang out with anyone, alive or dead, who would it be? Anyone in the world. Anyone in the Well, wow. Um, huh. <laughs> well, if, if it were uh, composers... My two choices would probably be Igor Stravinsky and Yoko Kano. Yep. One of, both of which are not incredibly accessible. Um, Kano, because she's uh, in Japan and speaks Japanese, and I don't speak a word of Japanese. And Stravinsky, because he's living impaired, so that makes it really hard to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hard to communicate. With, uh, <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah, with the uh, apparition Americans or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like... You know, so much of um, the way I think about music is from these two pretty much equally. I mean, Yoko Kano has composed, she has done so many uh, incredible scores and they're all unbelievably unique. This is a side of my career that is not quite as obvious, but um, I love the fact that, actually, honestly, both of them, they both have such a wide variety of what they do, but it always has some element you know, like Stravinsky, everything he does, it always kind of sounds like Stravinsky in some some way or in another. It yeah. always kind of comes back to that. And and with Kano, it's to an even broader extreme where she's doing, you know, all kinds of pop songs and then orchestral music and then tons of jazz and rock music. Like almost every genre you can possibly think of, she's done for, for an anime score or for a game score or TV show or movie or whatever. Um, but there's always that uh, that center to it. Um and so, yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to hang out with either of them. Uh, hopefully, a reanimated version of Stravinsky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it'd be boring otherwise. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would be kind of odd. <laughs> like talking, it'd be like that Hamlet scene, just hold up the skeleton, you know. Yeah, exactly, but um, yeah. uh, as far as non-composers go, I'm not really sure. Um, there's a lot of people I would love to warn about, like, hey, dude, it's nice hanging out with you, but you're about to get assassinated, so you might want to lay low for a little bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like some past presidents I thought were pretty cool. JFK and Teddy Roosevelt were probably my favorites. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's a, that's a something I don't really think about too often. I guess number one would be Ben Franklin. Oh, wow. Yeah, good choice. Because uh, I'm I'm from Philadelphia, so we idolize Ben Franklin for obvious reasons. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, I always imagined... <laughs> What would happen if, like, somehow or another, Ben Franklin stepped into like a, a time warp and he he came into the year 1990, whatever, and saw all this stuff? Like, how would you explain to him, like, what the internet was? Oh God, yeah. Or like, you know, what what cars were? You know, all these things. I I always thought that would be kind of fascinating as well. It'd be really interesting to be able to see that from someone's perspective from back then. You know, that'd be a nice sitcom, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, can't I'm there be a sitcom? It hasn't about... really been done. <laughs> 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 I mean, I guess Clone High, that that MTV uh, 
animated series where you could where it was like a high school with like clones of like Cleopatra, oh, JFK, really? <laughs> Gandhi, you know, all these yeah, yeah, all these like historical figures. Except they're now all the same age, they're teenagers and they're going through high school and stuff, but that doesn't really count because they're clones, so you know, the modern era is the only thing that they know. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean they've they've, they've done similar things i guess like the movie blast from the past and stuff where you know there is a character from the 50s in the present oh really stuff like that yeah i had a was it brendan fraser in it um, <laughs> i've never heard of this <laughs> yeah you should look it up blast from the past basically a, a guy gets kept in a in a bunker his whole life pretty much oh actually no yeah that's not the same either because he's basically just raised in a bunker um because his parents go underground in like the 40s 50s because they think they're under a nuclear attack uh, and then they never come back out and then he just comes back out in modern day as an adult and he's like what what's going on <laughs> oh yeah the the unbreakable was that same story the tina fey uh it's an american sitcom unbreakable oh unbreakable kimmy, kimmy schmidt. schmidt yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, a good exactly. one as well yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no i want to go way back I, I need someone from the 1700s oh yeah basically yeah so, time machine style like especially i need someone who doesn't understand like indoor plumbing because <laughs> i think that would be hilarious <laughs> They were like, "What? Where did it go?" Huh? I think I remember a coffee. Uh, sorry, coffee. A comedy sketch about this time traveler that came back from, uh, you know, the the uh, the seventeen hundreds Victorian London or something, and um, got my timelines wrong probably, but uh, he, he kind of turns up and he's just fascinated by coffee machines. Like, <laughs> he thinks they're amazing, <laughs> and it was just it was a really funny sketch because I'm like, yeah, they really would just be fascinated by everything. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that if we went to like twenty twenty two hundred or something. We would be amazed by the most what they would consider mundane, but then something that they think is awesome, we would be like, eh, whatever, you know. Who cares? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look at this retro car that we have that has four wheels and drives yeah. on the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like who would ever want to do that? Oh, <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us today, Wilbur. It's been an absolute pleasure having you, and um, we definitely look forward to hearing more of your work. Thanks, Sam. Thanks a bunch. Thank you for listening to the Sound Architect podcast, sponsored by Krotos Limited, creators of Simple Monsters and Dehumanizer. Don't forget you can also catch all of our great reviews and other articles at our website at www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. If you would like to support The Sound Architect, please check out our sponsorship link as well as our Patreon.